Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series in association with MG. In this series, I take the opportunity to conduct longer interviews than is possible on The Last Word on Today FM, giving me the opportunity to talk to really interesting people about really interesting things they're involved in or that they've done during their lives. Today, it's an entrepreneur that I have to admit I wasn't familiar with until recently, but he has a terrific backstory and also a really interesting invention which he is trying to develop, which could become crucial to car safety for everyone in the future. He also talks in considerable length about his different path to getting to where he is, going back to how twice he dropped out of secondary school and the reasons for that, and then how he pursued a career in the arts before turning to engineering. So Barry Lunn of Previsio is today's guest on Magnified with Matt Cooper. I very much hope that you'll very much enjoy it. And of course, this programme is sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Barry, I recently had Bobby Healy sitting in the same chair that you're sitting in now. And he came to talk about drone delivery, but we ended up talking about lots of other things, including cars and his Tesla and automated driving. And he got into a long thing about car safety. But you're the expert in car safety. So you're the person I need to talk to about it. But he was quoting that figure, was it? One and a half million people a year die in car accidents. Yeah, it's it's shocking. It's it's one the uh, recent average is one point three five million people die in car accidents every year. The scariest thing for me actually is the fact that the median hasn't changed in twenty years. So people think we've all this new tech and we've all these crash zones. Road deaths haven't shifted in twenty years worldwide. Why is that? Is that because of many more cars on the road as well, more people driving? Powerful cars, all of that, but it's because over when you dig into the results, over ninety percent of car accidents are caused by human error, right? So if you give humans more comfort, you give them advanced driver assistance systems and things like that, we find another way to distract ourselves. So we 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 basically just find another level all the time, and it's it's incredible. Some of the the EU's been really proactive on some of the safety systems that they brought in. Um, but if you actually, if you look at the effect of those uh, safety systems, you basically get a, an improvement for a while, then it plateaus and then it starts to go in the wrong direction again. But also, if you have people required to wear safety belts in cars, although maybe that's not universal, if you also have the cars been built in a way that's supposed to provide more safety, are they actually safer than they would have been a generation ago and a generation before that in their actual physical shape yes i mean they're, they're, they're like roll cages you know um you know all, all of that stuff had a had a big impact and then the, the you kind of uh, safety belts was the big one right that was like about 40 years ago the 80s that became the the big thing right um before your time matt um, <laughs> i wish but then Kind of around 2000, then you had the advancement in the application of AI onto the edge on on vision. That had an impact, but it also unlocked a bunch of other things that car makers could do to make drivers more comfortable and things like that. So basically, the kind of the bottom line has been, you know, we, we found other mobile phones came in around the same time, right? So not a coincidence. Um, you still, I mean, it still shocks me the amount of people I see with a phone in their hand. Like, like, there is no reason anymore anyone should have a phone in their hand, right? But they, they do. And most car accidents are rear endings, right? Um, so that's usually lack of foresight. That's you're driving a bit too quick. I mean, we drive too fast as well. Um, like like the, the speed limits are seen as targets as opposed to maximums. Um, so there's, there's a whole pile of things. It's edge cases. But you have to come back to that original thing more than 90 percent when they investigate accidents more than 90 percent of them are human error so the car makers can do all they want but we're we're going to find a way to crash you know and and even the road deaths aside there's a whole other site like outside of 1.35 million killed there's 50 million people maimed by cars every year 50 million 
and the cost to the global economy, which is the one, because let's say for some reason we accept this carnage, right? This, this, like I, I, I called it a pandemic when we started the company and uh, stopped using that since we actually got a bloody pandemic. It wasn't my fault. Essentially, the, the, uh, the, the cost of the global economy, $2.4 trillion a year cost to the global economy. Nuts. Like almost almost two percent of Ireland's GDP is relating to, to road crash. And then even aside from the economic and financial cost, I mean the impact on people's lives because you know, if you lose somebody who dies in an accident terrible, but also if you as you say, people left maimed are left in pain for the rest of their life as a result of travelling in a car. Yeah, it, it it's incredible. I mean, can you imagine someone turning up today and we didn't have cars? And, in, and they'd invented it and said, this is what we're going to do. They'd be laughed out of every regulator in the world. It kind of crept in. It's a bit like, you know, you look back at cigarettes and you go, seriously, how did that happen? And that's the way I look at cars. Like that, that, That's essentially, I'll put it to you this way. If you were sitting here today and uh, three Ryanair flights fell out of the sky, okay, there'd be, an, there'd be less people turning up tomorrow another tree fall out of the sky. The following day, another tree fall out of the sky. There's no one going to be flying. Let me just clarify in case Michael O'Leary ever hears this, no Ryanair flight has ever fallen out of the sky. Absolutely <laughs> not. Exactly. And that, that just shows. But if you think of how we think as, as humans, right, um, we still, people are still nervous getting onto aircraft after driving themselves to the airport. Where they're more likely to be involved in an accident on the way to the airport. A more likely. But then also brings up the issue that an awful lot of the flight is actually done automatically. No, yeah. Takeoff and landing still, for reasons of human fear, is controlled by humans. However, there are many people who say the flights could land themselves and could take off for themselves. So where are we at, do you reckon, with autonomous driving as a safety measure? Because this is something else that I discussed with Bobby Healy recently as a Tesla owner making the point to him that now everyone's talking about electric cars and environmentally, whereas the discussion five years ago was all about autonomous driving, which seems to have ended. Yeah, yeah, thankfully. Um, that was a really uncomfortable time, I would say, for people in the industry that actually knew what was going on. Um, so, like, the, the autonomy conversations that were ha- happening five, six, seven years ago were complete nonsense. They were complete hype. Complete. And everyone in the industry knew it. Like, I come from air defense background, right? And we'll get to that in a while. And, and that, that, in that space, just in, in terms of solving a problem, right? So if you want to put a satellite into space or you want to put something on the moon, you go to NASA, you go to ESA, you have to prove your technology can survive in that environment, right? Which is why people sometimes take the mick out of the software that's on satellites and things like that because it's 20-year-old software. But it's 20-year-old software because it's proven. It's absolutely proven in that environment that it can survive, right? The autonomous industry took a completely different approach. It took a computer science approach, right? And again, that, my original background is in that side and the, on the coding side. So first thing you do when you build a website, you build a hello world, right? And, and then you work up to a more complex site and then you, you build more complex things. And eventually that, that's how software works, right? You start incrementally and build. So what happened with autonomy, they started with, well, let's drive a car around in circles with some nice sensors on it and then on a track. And then we'll put it on, you know, limited roads and then we'll just drive. I mean, did, you know, b- people think Arizona, right, is like a, a, a mecca for, for uh, uh, automated vehicles. The reason for that is it's like a perfect optical environment, right? So there's, you know, that's why you put um, uh, telescopes down in Arizona as well, right? And so they created these perfect environments where the cars could do it with a million dollars of sensors. And then said, yeah, autonomy is going to, is going to happen. But all the edge cases, the stuff you would have looked at first in the air defense industry, you know, well, how does it perform the rain? What happens when, you know, this, that, the other thing happens? What happens in the tunnel when a car is braking? It could solve none of them. So that's actually how I got into autonomy was, like my previous company, we were building um, some of the most advanced radars in the world, right? They're really cool stuff, but they would cost a lot of money, right? So they were mainly going into air defense industry. And Every autonomous program reached out to us because they were saying, well, we need that tech on the car. And literally I said to all of them, look, you, you guys aren't 
serious about it. You know, you're not going to do the way it has to be done. You're going to look for me to take a piece of it. And they're all going, yeah. So one, one of those autonomous programs said, it rang and said, look, we'd like to do this. And I, I said, well, look, if you, the only way you can do it is if you put missile-grade tech onto the vehicle. And they said, well, we have a project called Project Aerospace, and that's because that's the way we're thinking now as well. Unless we start to think like air defense engineers, we're never going to solve this problem. So that's how I started working But on do you it. think, will they ever solve the issue? Do you ever think we will get autonomous driving? Yes, I But do. it's a long way off, is it? It's a long way off. And I, and I think it, it, it depends on how you define autonomy as well, right? Like, like we've had all these weird definitions, like ubiquitous autonomy is what you're referring to, right? Yeah. So everything's autonomous, right? That, that is a long way off, even just from a regulatory. And like, like isn't, this is what I don't get about, you know, the, the Silicon Valley uh, reality distortion field. It ignores history. Complete history, like like you cannot revolutionize and the, the world, and that's what it takes to, it, for ubiquitous autonomy. Does it also ignore human psychology? Yeah, absolutely, and th- that's a very important. You you mentioned like this is one of the, one of the things I like. You can't ignore the other. So so autonomous groups constantly quote that ninety percent thing, right? They say you know ninety percent of accidents are caused by humans. We'll take humans out in autonomous vehicles. They go. They ignore that eighty six percent of consumers don't trust autonomy. Right. You can't. Right. So you've got to build those two things up because who ultimately makes the decisions here is people. Right. Um, so you, you can't literally just piss the world off, which is what they did in the beginning as well. You know, truck drivers will all be out of work. Lyft said right, they wrote a report that was reported everywhere like this was in 2016, I think. It was, and it said in 2021, all Lyft drives will be autonomy, autonomous. And by 2025, we'd have ubiquitous autonomy. Now, I know some people in left, right? Do you honestly think they believed any of that? <laughs> right? But they had to raise billions and billions of dollars, right? And that's, that's how you do it. That's, you, you create that. So I think, to me... Hold on a second. That would leave themselves open to some sort of legal action, wouldn't it? If you're making claims to raise money that you know are not actually going to be delivered. I believe they call it Silicon Valley. That's how it works. That's how it works. You, you either get comfortable with, you know, creating a vision of the future that you know to be not entirely true or you can't, you know, you won't raise. And I suppose things. you put risk disclaimers into your various documentation so that there's no guarantee that this is going to happen. You are taking a gamble, blah, blah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's like the markets, when they quote the market, right? Like they literally... You know, gather the, the 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 entire marketplace and say, yeah, that's our total addressable market. When you know it's complete nonsense, and they know it. And they, so this industry, though, got particularly bad because it had to raise a particularly huge amount of money to 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 tackle the problem. So it really needed to sell a big thing, right? And if you if you actually sold the reality of like we're going to eke out little bits of autonomy over the next. 20 to 30 years and eventually like for me the path to autonomy is you only turn on autonomous features when it's no longer ethical to let the human drive that's the debate we should be having so right now the softwares and sensors that i have on the vehicle in certain scenarios they perform better than a human right so when it's raining um in in a dusty environment in fog right they can see much better than any human driver could ever, and they can see in 360 degrees and all that. In that scenario, you are getting to a place where it's actually unethical to let a human control a vehicle. So in that, that, that's where autonomy really should be actually focusing on the edge cases, focusing on the 90% of things and what humans do, and the car actually taking over in that. And if the car saves your life a couple of times, you might start to feel differently about autonomy then. You're going to take me out in a car in a little while and we'll bring the microphones with us and we'll chat while we're in it. But just tell us a little bit of what Previsio actually does. Just explain to me, accident prevention technology. And it's related to that autonomy thing, isn't it? Because if I understand this correctly, is it that you use technology to see beyond the line of sight, which gives additional information to help the car prepare for the possibility of an accident. Is that it? That's it, exactly. Yeah. Try, try, we kind of went back to kind of 
physics first principles and looked at the driving problem as opposed to the autonomy problem. Because, by the way, they're both the same thing, right? Um, so essentially what the autonomous industry tried to do was replicate the human, which isn't a very smart thing to do when we have so many crashes, right? So we just looked at the driving problem from physics first principles. What would the ultimate sensor and software suite look like to actually solve this problem? To see the things, to, to create that foresight, right? That, that, that's essentially what it is. Like, those 90% of accidents, like almost half of those are rear endings. Rear endings is always lack of foresight, right? You didn't know what was, what was going to happen, right? Um, so that's what we try to do. Could we create foresight? And then we started looking from the ground up and building something that would solve all of that. So look at all the problems and say, right, what would that look like? And that, that's essentially... So we, and it didn't exist. Just the, the hardware to do it or whatever just didn't exist. Um, so we, we started building it from yeah, the because ground the, up. The line of sight thing really interests me because it did actually, or I was thinking about it, say you're coming to a crossroads and if you have all these cameras on a car, the cameras can only see what's in front of it. It can't see what's coming from the other directions, left and right. Yes. And that's why people often complain the other car came out of nowhere. They didn't see it. Or the pedestrian runs onto the street. Or as Bobby Healy said, uh, the woman in a wheelchair chasing a chicken, which was not something, there was an edge case that had not been factored into Tesla's uh, projections. So you're actually been able to almost see around corners or see yeah. beyond the horizon? Yeah, and see, see beyond the vehicle ahead. Um, now, not the horizon so much. We haven't solved that one yet. But if you have any ideas, I'd be interested. Um, but no, seeing beyond the vehicles in front is another very important one. Because if you take rear-ending, right, what happens is a guy five cars ahead of you presses his brakes, right? And you learn about it when the guy in front of you's lights come on. Yeah, that's that's what happens in today's vehicles, right? We see the guy five cars ahead decelerate before his brake light comes on. And we can interpret that and say we need to slow down because not only do I want to slow down long before the last guy in that road decides to hit his brakes, because each person, there's a latency with each one. Right. So it's like domino effect. But the dude behind me is going to rear end me. So I assume always that nobody has the tech we have. So what I'm doing is I'm seeing him breaking and I'm decelerating in a manner that allows the guy behind me not to rear end. Okay, and the technology, does that force the car, does it take control of the car to do so or does it communicate to the driver that you must slow down? So that's, that's where we don't have to make that decision the automaker does, right? It can do both, right? So one of the big reasons we have an AI on the edge approach without getting too boring you can imagine when uh, today's sensors, right, send a message from so the radar, say, sends a message back to central compute, compute, and that's basically there's an object and it's decelerating, right? That's it. It's nothing fancy, and then the camera go it sends down a message and says that object is a car, right, with an eighty percent accuracy, and so then the central compute goes, okay, well if that car is decelerating. I need to send a message to the brakes. And that's how emergency braking works, the automated emergency braking. That's in cars today, right? What we do is we do all of that. We do full perception on the edge. We see, so not only did we see the car five cars ahead, we know exactly that it's a car. We know that on the sensor. We can send that uh, decision straight to the brakes, right, to brake. But we can also send an alert to the driver. But you are slowing down the loop by alerting the driver. So in an absolute emergency, all the time you should you should just emergency brake, right? Um, but you know what what I assume the automakers will do is driver alerts will be a big thing. What's your business model for this? What's our relationship? Do you hope to develop with the automobile manufacturers? Yeah. So it, it, again, like it's it's pretty proven. Like you hear a lot of people going, "We're going to completely upset this whole industry." Like. like Disruption. Disruption. Yeah, disruption. Is, We're going to disrupt the whole thing. Look, is that just a buzzword that really doesn't actually mean a lot? Yeah, like our, I would say our tech is completely disruptive, but do I think we can disrupt the entire business model of the auto industry? A small startup from our no, right? It's just like let's let's talk be realistic reality. about this. So we partner, and that's what we're doing. So the big, you know, big tier ones. The Big OEMs. What is happening though? And Sorry, the, what's an OEM? An o- original equipment manufacturer. The guys that make the cars, right? So 
your BMWs, your Teslas, whatever. They're the OEMs. The tier ones are the guys that supply them all the bits, right? So Bosch, Conti, uh, Aptiv, these these big guys. These are all monstrous companies, and they all love and hate each other, right? It's a, it's a very interesting industry. Then you've the tier twos who sell technology into those guys, and then what's actually... So traditionally... The tier threes never saw an OEM. The tier twos never saw an OEM. The tier ones were the only ones to talk to the OEMs. That's it. That I'm sorry, which changed. tier are you? Tier two or three, tier three? Again, this is what's changing, right? You're, you're starting to see now the OEMs want to talk directly to people like us, right? And we're, so we're engaged heavily with OEMs because ultimately they're the decision maker of what goes on their vehicle. And now you're seeing people like NVIDIA and Qualcomm and these guys come into the space trying to upset that whole tier one structure, right? Where they're almost creating an app store for safety and autonomy. And the OEMs love that, right? Because what they say as well is, oh no, you loan all the data. We're just going to facilitate all of this. So we'll bring the likes of Provisio and all these guys together, and then you'll be able to cherry pick those. So that is something that is a disruption that's happening in there. So the lines are blurring between tier two, three, and one. But the ones will always be the good. Like when it comes to series production and BMW are going into new, and that, that's generally considered a million plus vehicles, right? When it gets down to that meat and gravy, the tier ones are still going to have an awful lot of, to say in it, right? And how is a Limerick-based company like Previsio going to succeed in this? Because presumably there are others trying to do the same and are pitching to the manufacturers. Yeah, they are. Um, the great thing is there's an awful lot of others saying that this is the way to do it. Uh, but the field gets very small when you talk about actually having the tech and showing it work, right? And by the way, in, when we started the company in 2019, we were theoretically speaking as well, right? What I would say on that front is, first off on that, because of the insights we had from from some of those projects we were working on in previous company, we were able to identify that actually this is all going to fall flat in its face. So that allows you to prepare for that, right? And sometimes when you're in the industry and you're still there, you can't be that guy. So it was nice to be a new startup starting in the space and going, everyone's got it all wrong. We're going to take a new approach and it's going to be that. Now a couple of others have started taking the same approach. That's actually great validation, right? So when big companies like Mobileye, and Amberella, just in the last uh, couple of months, have, have have come out and said, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to take this approach. Uh, safety is a path to autonomy, but also we're going to you need to see the world in 4D, and you need to be able to have semantic data on the edge, all that stuff." So that that's what we're doing, which is great. Um, what we have is a bunch of really uh, nice tech that that builds a moat for us, um, and also. We've built it. So I, I was at an, an event recently with, a, with with an agricultural OEM and literally just before us, another company went in and said, this is what the future should look like. And they had an image of, of essentially what we're building and said, this is what we're going to build. And then I went in directly after them and said, yeah, we built that. And here it is. So that's how they're talking to us because it's, it's there. It's real. What brought you into this? Is it, were you a car lover or what is it? No, and I'm, I'm, I'm not into cars. And it's, it's, it's one of the most difficult things about this job, actually, is because a lot of people are really into cars, like really into them. And I've never been into cars. I learned to drive really late, like late in life, like, like in my 30s. Um, like lived abroad for years, saw the benefits of not having cars. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually a fan of cars. In fact, I think we should have way, way, way less cars on the road, right? So there I go. That, that makes me popular in the industry. It's funny, though, when you did, the higher up you get in some of these companies, an awful lot of people would have very similar opinions. You know what I mean? That the, the car-centric world does have to change and will change. So either accept that or you, you'll go the way of the dinosaur. So, no, like, why I got into it was uh, a year or two ago, right, if you thought, if COVID-19 broke out, right, and disillusioned Matt or not, right, you thought, I know how to solve this. I, 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 I can fix this. Um, it's very, very hard to sit in that and say, okay, I'm not going to do anything with it. And that's what happened to me with the automotive industry. It was like, honestly, the tech we're doing, 
probably could have gotten there an awful lot quicker and wouldn't have had to raise any money and would have just gone bringing that into the air defense industry right and that that like they'd have lapped it up and i'd have made lots of money but like when you think you can solve a problem of that scale there aren't many problems of this scale in the world right like this is probably the hardest uh, ai challenge that's ever been attempted and disillusion barry or not i think we could solve it Roll back for me, because you mentioned aerospace a couple of times, aerospace defense. So your previous company, Aralis, radar technology specialist. Tell us about that, because you've sold that business at a yeah. considerable profit, presumably, as well. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it was great, and everyone did well. And it's still going, by the way, so I don't want to talk about it in the past tense. The company's flying. and um... What did it do, and how did you set it up? So basically, without being too boring about it, um, we, we've been kind of working in, in air defense for a number of years, myself and my co-founder, Mike. We'd worked together in a previous company. We were partners in that as well. And we were looking over the horizon at, at autonomy because autonomy was happening in uh, air defense before it was ever happening in cars, right? So helicopter landing systems, things like that. But like, you know, the most popular autonomous vehicle in the world is actually missiles, right? So aero defense is, is, is the autonomous industry. And we were looking at that coming over the horizon, but also communications and use the same technology, right? And that comms, the, the low frequency stuff, the, the 2G, all that was, was jammed, right? The, the highway had too many cars, right? So we were looking at that and said, people have to come into our space, millimeter waves. So I'd worked in millimeter waves for a long time. So that's an area of frequency, very high frequency. It's a pain in the ass to work with, right? It's really hard to, to work with low frequency stuff, radio, all that. That's easy to work with, right? You can put it all on silicon chips. You can do all that, right? Uh, the higher the frequency, uh, we call them millimeter waves. Basically, the waves are just smaller, um, literally millimeters. And when you put a lid on them, they misbehave, right? Um, so the bigger the wave, the easier it is to deal with, right? When okay. you, so the smaller waves are, are, are a bit of fun, right? But we were looking at that and saying, so at that time, millimeter wave technology was exclusively used in aero defense industry, right? Because uh, it has lovely properties. It gives you loads of bandwidth for communications. It gives you very high resolution imagery for, for um, uh, radar, right? So essentially that stuff, we used to make them like big brass boxes and things like that. And, and literally everything, all the waves were channeled through, you know, pipes essentially right it was and i loved it right it was a real plumbing thing it felt like real engineering right not like that stuff on chips but we realized that needed to get onto chip that needed to get to something so like there was a uh, bird detection system that the air force uh, in in the u.s were using and it it drove around in a horse box right um that technology for it to be adopted into helicopters and into cars eventually really needed to come into something that fitted in the palm of your hand, right? So we, we knew the market opportunity was huge. And so that's the concept around Aralis was let's bring that technology onto the chip. And that, that it was we were naive in one way because we said like we, we got it onto the chip quite quickly. And we said, here we go, happy days. And then we discovered, sure, it's still a pain in the ass to deal with. No one could get stuff on and off the chip, right? So then we said, right, we'll build modules and we'll put a number of these chips together and then it'll give a function to someone right and then we did that and then people went yeah but how do we use the module and then eventually you are building a subsystem and suddenly you're going oh we need software engineers and then the next thing you know you know especially the lower end clients which is what i would call an automotive 
uh, application would be a lower end client uh, where it's almost exclusively software engineers. They just don't know how to do, you know, they all dropped out of physics for a reason, right? So we just had to make it, and that, that's essentially what our, our Alice was doing. We made it easy for people to access really high frequency at a reasonable cost. It was still high cost, but it was reasonable. So right now, like, so just give some examples, like, and, and I, I like giving this one because it happened after my time, so it's not me, right? Um, last year, uh, Rallis was it, it launched, it was a, on a satellite launch, right? And you, you know, people won't hear about this in the mainstream, but they did the communications, the up and down speed, right? So you hear an awful lot about Starlink and that side of things. Um, so this, this thing blew Starlink out of the water in terms of its up and down speeds uh, that they did. And that was, that was completely driven by, by Aralis. And it was their chip subsystem, the entire, the entire communications. And that's up there in space uh, working. So like that, that's pretty cool. Are you, yeah, you're proud of that invention. Yeah, re- really proud. Yeah, and I'm, you're I'm right re- to me. I'm really proud that the, that the guys did it too. And it's not like the Barry Lunch show, right? Um, that, it was, it, that that's what the company has done and the guys have driven on with that. How difficult was it? To sell the business. Okay, obviously you start a business to make money and you got well paid for it. And it was reported that the acquisition was something like $50 million at the time. But how difficult is it to give up something that you have conceptualized and developed? Yeah, I, I found that difficult. Uh, my co-founder, less less so. You wanted the money, isn't it? Are you joking me? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I found that very difficult. Um, and and it, Because we didn't plan. It was very quick acquisition like as in we were sold on our third anniversary um of the company that quickly yeah yeah it didn't feel that quick like we were out raising our series a and basically the guys that that bought us had you know offered a term sheet to invest and we said no it was it was a hong kong private equity group and we said no purely because we were doing a lot in the u.s and we just said you know on the cap table that might not be good for us in the long term so essentially what, what we did, um, they, they came back and, and made an acquisition offer. And um, actually, they didn't. In, in the end, how it turned out was um, one of my non-exec directors and longtime mentor and advisor to me, Eamon Ryan, he formerly uh, ran analog devices down in Limerick for 20 odd years. And he's, he's on the board of Provisio as well. We, we had a chat. I was moving to America, moving to L.A. We'd done a couple of months there, myself and the wife and kids. And he said, you know, have you ever had a chat with Mike about all this? Because Mike was back at, in, at base, building the tech and keeping things going. And uh, so we, my, myself and Mike had our first shareholders meeting as opposed to, you know, board meetings and all that. And I said, it was an offhand remark. I said, if we could sell this tomorrow, would you sell it? And he said, oh, God, yeah. And now, in fairness, Mike is 20 years older than me as well, right? So that, that would have played a factor. And, you know, it was around the block in era defense for a long time. And I said, okay. And I said, text the guys, right? So they were his contact, the people in, in, in Hong Kong. And um, I went out to dinner that night and I got a text from Mike saying, yeah, they said, yeah. And that was it. Take us back how you got into all this, because you mentioned about coding early on, but your original background wasn't in engineering or computer science, was it? I mean, tell us about where you went to college. Yeah, and uh, actually... Uh, it's it's funny. My original background wasn't an engine, absolutely not in terms of where I went to college. But I would say, if you asked my mother, she would have said, "Yeah, he was making and breaking things since he was born, right?" So I was a Lego kid. I was an electronics kid. I was always making and breaking things. I grew up next door uh, to the head of electronic engineering in NIT, and he had a garage full of bits and bobs. Um, and I just love going in there. Like he was, they had a. A computer before I'd ever, you know, even contemplated what one would look like. And uh, funnily enough, his his son is is a is a senior engineer in um, Google for for quite some time, and actually now works on their autonomous vehicle program, which is quite funny. And uh, I must remind him because the two of us built a go kart when we were younger together. So so it'd be great to to maybe build an autonomous vehicle together now. Uh, but that so I was always into that kind of stuff. But I struggled in school, and so yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about dyslexia? Because you're not the first person I've spoken to on the series who has thrived in business while actually dealing with dyslexia, particularly in their schooling years. 
Yeah, yeah. And I suppose I didn't struggle with dyslexia in my school years because I was never diagnosed, right? So it was much later that I was diagnosed. So I, I struggled with laziness, apparently, according to my teachers, right? And, and that, that, that's actually one of the most frustrating parts of dyslexia, that it's often misdiagnosed. Not, not so much these days, but still. I have a nephew who was misdiagnosed with laziness as well, and I knew he wasn't, right? And I knew what he was going through as well, because... The problem with dyslexia is you you can you do aptitude tests and you do things like that. You you score really highly a lot of the time, right? Um, so then people say you see massive potential, and also when they communicate with you on a on a day to day level, teachers especially, they see a, a level of intelligence and an, an ability to work things out, and when that doesn't translate into grades. There was kind of only one diagnosis in the 80s and 90s in Ireland of, like, he's lazy. And that was the real... And outside of, like, I was never really a teacher pleaser. Um, I didn't really... I wasn't, you know, I had an issue with authority on all levels, right? So I don't want to make out, like, that, you know, I was trying and they weren't coming with me, right? But actually, my biggest struggle was with myself because I couldn't understand. I knew my capability... And I couldn't translate it into performance. And that really, really, I really struggled with yeah, that. Did that make you unhappy? Very, very unhappy. So, I, like, I, I dropped out of school at 15. But, like, I, I, you know, I probably haven't talked about that before. But, like, my mother, thankfully, stepped in at that time as well. And um, I started going to a psychiatrist and uh, started dealing with things in that way. So, yeah, I was on... I was on Prozac when I was 15 and it's all related to the dyslexia, that struggle with my performance versus my capability. When did you get the diagnosis? In actually, so yeah, then, so I ended up going to art college uh, eventually. And, and, sorry, this um, is that, you, you dropped out of school a couple of times, didn't you? And Gary yeah, went yeah. back to do your leaving cert eventually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I dropped out in fifth year and then I, I dropped out again in... Um, in sixth year, I went back and then I dropped out again, like just, just couldn't make it work. Um, and I wanted to make it work. And I, uh, but I always, I was working on the side as well. So it was, you know, I had a job. Um, so, you know, I wasn't lazy. Just a reminder, I wasn't lazy in case any of my old teachers. Were lazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it, it eventually, bizarrely enough, I ended up sitting my leaving in a completely different school, uh, two schools. So I went to, there's country, local country school rather than I had been in the city school. I went to this local country school hospital and they had a tech and they had the, the De La Salle, I think it was at the time. And I asked them, could I sit to leave in there? Because the subjects I wanted to do, one of the schools didn't do all of them, you know, that kind of way. So I wanted to do engineering, I wanted to do art. Um, but then the, the other subjects, and I wanted to do honours maths, and I wanted to, do, and they didn't do that in the tech. So I kind of, but anyway, they agreed, and I said I, I don't do classes very well, and I don't do it, and and they let me, they let me do my leaving there, um, and I didn't have to go to class. That was um, progressive thinking on their part. Yeah, it was for the time. And, yeah, again, an awful lot of things you look back on, and you go, wow, that happened. But at the time, it seemed even for me to go in and say that to them to me, seemed perfectly reasonable, uh, which is why I'm always worried about myself, right? Because when I look back, there's so many unreasonable things that I've done and asked for that I kind of go, what's the unreasonable thing I'm looking yeah, for right now? Presumably that has stood to you in business since. I mean, a degree of self-confidence to go and ask and to take been knocked back and to come back again and do it again. Yeah, yeah, I think that 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 that's definitely there. But I think as well, I'm not so sure it's confidence. It's it's another dyslexic thing, actually. So, and by the way, this is, so my son is dyslexic, right? And he's, he's just turned 13 now and he was diagnosed when he was about seven. But like he sees dyslexia as a superpower. Like he was reared completely different on this. Like, because basically once you diagnose it early, we've been able to, to address all the issues of dyslexia, right? Around reading and writing. And, and by the way, those things aren't, that big a problem but even how you take in information so with little tweaks in schooling and literally giving his teachers every year a manual right that says this is how his brain works and this is how you you work with it and it's not hard it's it's literally like making sure he understood the question it's giving him a little extra time on on something so those little tweaks allow you to then fix the issues right 
But then there's a huge number of advantages to dyslexia. And probably the biggest one is how you see the world. You do see the world a little bit differently. I call it the, the helicopter view, right? So you, and that can be a frustration as well. So you tend to see results and then you work back and try and work through to that. But you, you tend to see the outcome of things very quickly. That's how I would describe it. So like what we're building right now in Provisio, like back in 2018, 19, when I started on the napkin design and what we were going to build, like stuff we cracked just now, like super confident that back then I was seeing that. And then what you end up doing is trying to bring along people on that path with you. So I think that that's how I would how I would look at the, the whole dyslexic advantage is that being able to see the end result. So to be honest with the guys in going to those principles and asking for that that just seemed like a step to the place I needed to get to I, I saw the outcome which was me doing these exams and getting those results and, and so, getting so when did you get the diagnosis what age were you I uh, would have been what two, about 22 or 3 and when you got that diagnosis what was that like was there a sort of a eureka moment no and, and, and I suppose even on the diagnosis thing I think like there, there can be a little bit of a, you know, even again, I'm very conscious watching my own son as he develops, right? Because it can be a bit of like, oh, you're dyslexic. So that's now how you are. Even with the thing, like it was, it was a, one of my lectures in college that after I submitted something went, um, have you ever been assessed for dyslexia? And I said, well, you're not the first to mention it. Uh, and he said, well, so he was kind of a... He, Sorry, why did you say that? Was it the way it was written? Or yeah. the sort of the... Is it the structure of how things were written or the spelling or what was it? It was a little bit of everything. Um, and especially if it was a written submission. And, you know, a lot of submissions in, in college and that would be typed. Uh, but this was, this was critical and contextual studies. So you had to react to what you were seeing. So I was in the art gallery reacting to the paintings that I was and interpreting and, and doing all that. And so he, he looked at that and... and he was also a qualified um, assessor for, for dyslexia. So, and then, so we, we did some testing there and then type thing. And uh, he said, yeah, look, you know, there's a few things you could change and, and make your life an awful lot easier. Um, and that was it. But and did you and did it? Yes. And yes. And, but to be fair, people at, especially our college unlocked that whole side of my brain as well. And, and all the stuff that almost I was, taught to suppress in school our college encourages all of that what sort of things like the first thing you do is you you brain dump all the wrong answers first in our college like our college is all about getting it all out of you there's no right and wrong answer right and then it teaches you to kind of self-assess those things and and firstly you put them up in front of your classmates and they help you with assessing what your assumptions and all that and you you kind of break it down and you you restructure it and learn how to do that that's a very different way of learning to school there's no rote learning uh it's it's all about and there's no right or wrong answers so in our college like even in the in the exam there's an awful lot of interpretation like like you know of you know what what you know, what did I get from a painting versus what did Matt Cooper get from a painting? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but there has to be a logic and there has to be a flow. So that suited my way of thinking and my way of, of working. And fair play to your mother for persuading you to do that rather than going the engineering route that you'd wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and again, there's a context to that as in like she'd gone through, the poor woman, right? Going through years of me dropping out of school, like struggling with depression, you know, all all of that stuff. Like, like you know, she wasn't taught that. She wasn't, you know, now she's a very, very clever woman. So really, you know, good to see things and understand things and know and to be fair, cut me a break in that. Like an awful lot of parents, I know, you know, teachers kept saying, this guy is a bit of a bum. Um, uh, you know, they would take that to heart. To be fair, she cut me some slack on that front. Now, she thought I was a bit of a bum as well. Uh, but, you know, she, she kind of went halfway with me. After you got the diagnosis and changed things, have you had issues with depression since? No, I, 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 no, no, I don't, I don't think I've ever... 
I don't think I've ever been depressed since I, my teenage years, actually. I That's know. good. Yeah, it's really good. Now, again, I, like, I break things out, like, and I don't mean that as in, I've got it all worked out here, Matt. Like, yeah. like, like I would definitely struggle with anxiety and things like that. You know what I mean? Doing something like this today now would just not, like, would not be my comfort zone. Right? Really? Oh, God, no. Yeah, no, no. Like, I, I, I would very much be an introvert. Like, I'm very happy in my own... I, I have to... I, I would say my wife has socialised me. But yet, in the business that you have and previous businesses, you've had to go out and sell. I mean, mm. and you're very clearly very articulate and able to sell what it is your vision for the business is. And presumably that's important in raising funds and also in dealing with potential customers. And that, 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 that's where you've almost got the, yeah, that, 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 that's the bit that's hard to match up. I, I suppose what I would define that as more is passion and belief. Um, and it, I, I definitely have a passion for what I'm doing. I believe very strongly in it. So that side, when I'm actually just talking about the tech, I'm pretty happy. When I'm in the, in, in the, in the car showing something, someone what we're doing, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in that, that space. That's, I get into flow, but it's the build-up. We'll go out to the car in a few moments. But how did you go from art college to engineering? Yeah, so... <laughs> Again, another thing I struggle with, right, when I went to art college was I realized I also don't have the patience uh, for this pace of life, right? So, so especially, like, I went there and I'm going, right, maybe ceramic sculpture, painting, and, and the great thing about art college is you get to try all of them in the beginning, right? Um, and, like, then I was, like, fashion. I really like the pace of fashion. Um, and I, you're looking at me with raised eyebrows going, you don't look like a guy who's into fashion. No, <laughs> that's not what I meant. It's just, it's, <laughs> no, it's interesting. And in some respects, in imagination has carried through into what you're doing in business. So I can actually see why you would have been interested. Yeah, yeah, I love But fashion. at the same time, hands-on. sorry, you are wearing the regulation techie black t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, I was I was wearing it before everyone else, though, I remember that. So, yeah. They, um, but, yeah, so, I re- yeah, really into, really like the fashion. And then graphic design was the other thing that appealed to me. And both are kind of fast-paced uh, creative industries. Um, and so design was kind of where I found my forte. And uh, so in our college, I was considered a nerd, right? So, in, so in, whereas in, I guess in, if I had gone and done engineering in UL, I'd have been considered an arty-farty guy, right? So that, 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 that's it, like, in a nice way, right? Everyone in our college is way nicer than in general society. But I would have been considered. So I then, I suppose I got into the graphic design, really liked that, re- had a you know, obviously I was able to to perform in it too, right? So now I was able to match the potential with the actual performance, right? It was it was working out. Um and then like the web was coming along, right? And like 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 when I started in first year, like I remember someone setting up my email address for me. I knew nothing. I didn't, I couldn't use computer. That, that was the level I was at, but like, I was completely intrigued by the web. And to be fair, get like, so I got into coding, um, but I almost learned code by accident. Like essentially I wanted to solve a problem. And the only way I could solve the problem, the designs I wanted to do was learn to code. So it started off but, with... But it's not working almost in the opposite way. So you spoke earlier about having the helicopter view and seeing the end. Mm-hmm. But from what you describe coding is coding starts at absolutely the opposite end because you have to start from a very small base and build up on that. So yeah. how much of a challenge is that to you? It was fine because I knew that this was one of the steps I had to take to get to that end product. So I knew what I wanted to build and then, and I went, oh, God, I got to learn this boring crap to get there. And that, that, that really was it. And then, like, it just starts off with HTML and I can do something. And then I went, oh, yeah, but I can't do the things I want to do. So then you're learning JavaScript and then you're learning ActionScript. And the next, next thing you know, you're almost building up a bunch of... But I was, I'm a total hacker. Like, like well, sorry, right now, like, I can't code for damn now, right? But I was a total hacker. Like, like if someone else had already done it, I just stole their code, right? That, that, I mean, that is how it all works anyway, right? You, you discover over time that that's what everyone does. But at the time, you know, that was it. Like, I just, just, um, and, and that was an awful lot of, back to your thing, reverse engineering would have been a big part of everything I've ever done. I always, from 
when I was like, as far as I can remember, I always needed to know how something worked. I never got a buzz out of driving race cars around the racetrack, right, to Skeletrics or whatever. But I got a real buzz out of ripping that Skeletric set to pieces and trying to rebuild it. And I think that's how, how I approached the web as well. Anytime I saw something, I was like, oh, I need to understand how that. And then I'd break it down and rebuild it up. And so that was kind of how I got into it. And then, like, basically, how did I end up in aero defense? These two Limerick entrepreneurs, well, sorry, from Galway, uh, Sugru Brothers, um, back in the 80s, like Ed Walsh's time in, in UL, and, and, and I'm sure you know, uh, you know, he wanted to build the MIT of, yeah. of Europe, right? Um, Dennis and Owen Sugru were uh, two lecturers in UL. And, you know, the, 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 in fairness to Ed Walsh, like the foresight there was incredible, setting up an economic zone around the university and all that. They were one of the first spin-outs out of UL. So the two guys went off and set up Intipro. Um, and it was a byproduct of the Wangs and all these were setting up in, in Limerick. And the guys started building test systems uh, for, for uh, those companies and then ex- expanded, right, and, and went multinational. But, like, they built a proper company, raised venture capital from, like, you know, French VCs, all this kind of stuff, right, in the 80s, you know, go back there. And they sold that company uh, in the 90s, uh, 90, 92, I think it was. Um, and essentially, I met them in 2000 when I was, when I was finishing up in, in college. And they were going again together. Uh, so after the sale, Owen had moved to France, Dennis had moved to Moscow. And in, in 2000, they decided to come back together and met, met me. And I was kind of the first employee. And the reasoning was for them, so they were proper hardware guys, right? They were building test systems. And um, the reasoning was they were saying the world is changing the front end is becoming more important than the hardware, right? What the customer sees. And so kind of employee number one was a, a hacker from Limerick that could put a front end on other people. They, they were going, no way are we ever going to build hardware and go through that pain again. So put a front end on that. And so I went off to France uh, with those guys. And Jesus, what I learned in the next couple of years, because I didn't grow up around entrepreneurship. I'd never even heard the word, to be honest. Um, I didn't grow up around any of that. And when you talk about confidence earlier, I would have had zero confidence around that side of the world, right? Um, I would have been a typical working class young fella, right? Um, But working with those guys, I saw, you know, another side to the world and I got to really experience what that could look like and got to see the world as well, right? And uh, that gives you a completely different perspective. So I think then eventually, you know, I started doing my own thing and started building some bits on the side and, you know, and they were, they were quite encouraging to that as well. Like they were, they were big believers in that as well of, you know, let him at it. Um, Cause it took a bit of foresight from them to see potential in an art college graduate um, that could come into the tech space. But that, yeah, so it kind of gradually happened. Will we go out to the car and you can show me the car? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we've moved out to the car. Luke, thank you very much for driving us, one of Barry's colleagues. So, Barry, will you just explain to me, please, um, this car, what type of car it is, and all of these various uh, screens that you have in the back of the car? Yeah, so it's 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 a Defender, right? So Jaguar Land Rover uh, Defender vehicle. It's a it's a test vehicle um, that we that we use that we use all the time. What do you uh, mean by a test vehicle? So basically, this is where we mount our sensors and software and, and put it all on here and uh, go and drive around and see if it works and do data collections, uh, do all of that, that type of thing. So we're, 
the vehicles are based down in Shannon at Future Mobility Campus Ireland, which is a great initiative, right? Started by two ex-Jaguar Land Rover engineers. Um, and essentially, that they, they're building a test bed down there. Um, but like Jaguar Land Rover have, have a big uh, software uh, side of their business in Ireland, um, headed up by John Cormack. And, and uh, like they've just been super helpful to us from the beginning, uh, let us use their, their garages and things like that. And give us these great vehicles right so um and so what's on right now what's on this vehicle uh because we've stripped it all down just to keep it simple for a demo and um but we have one of our so we've built these four-dimensional radars right and essentially what that is your traditional radar sends out a pulse it gets a pulse back and it says right there's an object 100 meters ahead and it's moving at 100 kilometers an hour what you're looking at here is an imaging radar right so it, it actually creates an image of the world uh, like a lot of people talk about lidar that's what has dominated the autonomous industry is these lidars you've seen them on the google cars these great big ice cream vans right up and up on top of the roof um essentially lidar a is ridiculously expensive and will always be right it just costs more money to put put those that type of technology together the other side of it is it fails in an awful lot of the edge cases, the environments. Of it. So it's not very good in rain, right? So in Ireland, it's not. So when you talk about ubiquitous autonomy, so one of the cornerstones of what we're building here was that you needed to be able to have a, a LiDAR-like resolution, but using radar, um, and you needed to build it in a cost-effective manner. So there's one of these on, on the front of this vehicle that we're in right now. You can kind of see the image of the world that it's creating here. Um, yeah, just describe that image. Maybe I'll just explain a little bit that. We're in the front driveway of my house. So there, the opening where the gates are, the gates are open for the car to drive out. But I have large hedges at each side, which always make me nervous because uh, is it, when an alien is driving the car out, is she going to see what's coming from either side? Pedestrians first, then cars. Now, fortunately, we have a camera back, so she has a screen in front of her where she can actually see what's coming behind her. But do you are you offering something more effectively than a camera would in a conventional car at present? Yeah, exactly. So you you know we had a pedestrian just walk up and down there a second ago, and we could we could see them you know walk walk across yeah. out here. Whereas obviously we can't. We're occluded. You knew they were going to suddenly that somebody would appear in the gap where exactly. the gate is. And even that car, we we saw that beforehand. You know what I mean? And obviously, if you look across here. We're actually seeing an awful lot more that's going on in the environment as well. That that, that almost going beyond the beyond the streets ahead, right? That that's that's kind of what you you get with this. Um, and you can imagine that's with just one forward facing. On the vehicle, there would also be two front corner ones as well. So you're actually getting even more. Like the the field of regard on this is 120 degrees, uh, but when you've all of them under, it's 360. So there's your gate. There you can see the those big red points are like that's your metal gates, right? Because uh, you need to be careful around those. Um, but yeah, and you, you can see the vehicles go up and down. But the big thing is that we're kind of seeing that image of the world, right? Uh, you know, in in and when we four say four dimensions, just for clarity on that one. Uh, 3D, we all understand, right? You've seen the world and there's elevation, so traditional radar doesn't have elevation, whereas you can see this has. Uh, the fourth dimension is the velocity of every object, right? And that's critical. So cameras guess, right? So if you put a, you know, a vehicle on the road today, it's basically guessing the distance of every vehicle. It's guessing where they are and what they're going to do. Radar, by its nature, the Doppler, you know, since World War II when it was invented, um, you know the exact velocity. So every one of those points that you're seeing, so we're looking at a point cloud here, right? Um, and that's essentially points bouncing back from the world and giving an image of the world. Um, every single one of those points um, has velocity associated with it. So we know the exact range and velocity of all those points. You can imagine when it comes to driving, that's critical, right? So now when I'm driving, I'm able to see, I don't know if you want to drive off, Luke, um, you'll obviously see that the the image will change, but also those those velocities change and our relative velocity to those change. And you have to understand that fourth dimension. You can't just be guessing when it comes to actually solving these, these problems. Luke, will the car, as Luke is driving it, will it stop him from moving out into a dangerous situation? This car won't, right? This is a purely a, 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 a demonstration test vehicle. In time, absolutely. I mean, that, that's exactly what we're, what we're doing. So you're not actually allowed 
test um, autonomous features on Irish roads right now. There's legislation going going through the the process at the moment, um, but as of right now, you're not allowed to test. Luke, I suggest features. take a left and then take a left again, please. Thanks. We'd probably do a, a loop of the block. So you can start to see here that it's building up an image of the of the buildings across the way now. This, by the way, this is coming directly from the sensor, right? The reality is you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, you know, in the, in the setup on the vehicle, you wouldn't have that. You'd have a compute system at the center. But you can start to see here how we're starting to see the world. We're seeing all these buildings, shapes, and that as we, as we come around the corner. And that heavy lifting, which is a lot of heavy lifting, it's like terabytes of data, is all being done on the sensor. So eventually you would be doing some of that on a central processing unit on the vehicle and some of that on the sensor. But we just like to show off, and uh, this has been a big thing for us, is showing this. So like, to put this in perspective, nobody else in the world has ever demonstrated this technology live, right? Nobody. Like, I was down at NVIDIA a couple of weeks ago. It's their first time ever seeing this. And we're processing all that on an NVIDIA GPU, right? So again, it's fully software defined. And what that means is it just allows us to make it way, way cheaper, right? So you can see all the trees here, you can see all of that, and you can see the path that we're navigating through it, right? Um, and then we can put things on, like, like, you know, we can read the road markings and stuff like that. But that, that kind of stuff is kind of a, a layup, as I would call it. Look, um, take the next left up here, please. So, like, you know, you, you, that's the easy stuff, and that, that's the stuff that can be easy to show off. But you can see here as well, we're identifying all the vehicles and the probability that they are a vehicle and what else they are, you know, that kind of way. How much is all this going to cost to put into a car? Yeah, that's, that's the big thing, right? So there, there's a LiDAR on the roof. Actually, I'll turn on the LiDAR, right? Because this is, this is the LiDAR. This is probably one of the lower-end LiDARs you can have, right? But it's, it's um, the most popular LiDAR in the world right now, right? That, that, that LiDAR costs $6,000, right? Um, so you can imagine, you need, you need a ton of those around the vehicle, right? So, that's, so you're adding enormously to the cost of the vehicle. And that's one of the cheapest ones, right? The ones that are on the Waymo vehicle and the cruise vehicle, uh, they're, they're $100,000 a piece, right? Um, our goal, and we, we can build and sell to the OEMs uh, the spec of radar that's on the front of this vehicle for 50 bucks. That little? That little. It has to be. It has, and we can do it. And the one we're building, so we're building one at the moment that's 22 times the resolution of this one, uh, which will be the forward-facing one, because that forward-facing space is so important. That one will be 100 bucks. Luke, left again, please. And, and that is the key with technology, isn't it? Always, when you start working on it, it's bringing the price down rapidly to Absolutely. make it affordable. Absolutely. And the reason we can achieve that is, like, we have a bunch of like, different IPs around it, but the main one is because it's fully software-defined from the front to the back end. And a number of things have happened over the last number of years. So back in Aralis, we couldn't have built this at this price point. We built these, and our, you know, our, our sales price was 100000 dollars as well right uh for the air defense industry which they didn't mind right but just there's been a couple of Luke, kind of, sorry left again is the only way you can go here the there's been a couple of semiconductor advances over the last number of years that's essentially allowed us the backbone of this and then a bunch of really cool techniques that that the guys have developed along that front we've essentially got this kind of active antenna technique that allows us to extract way more resolution from those chips. So we, we actually improved the performance of those chips by 30 times uh, using a bunch of funky software and antenna designs. Where are you at in developing this company? I mean, how close are you to getting this technology brought into cars that will be offered for sale? Uh, a hell of a lot closer than we were a couple of months ago. So this, what we're, what I'm showing you now, just just wasn't possible up to literally two months ago. We Look left again, please. We cracked the ability to, to demonstrate this and, and, and show this on vehicle two months ago. So we've been kind of in the cave for the last year and a half. Now we're out talking to all those decision makers, right, and, and uh, making sure we get out in front of them and all that. Reality is we see the market for us is from 2025 plus, right? That, that's where we are. Um, getting into series production. so that And that means we have to partner with the tier ones and we have to partner with the OEMs to bring this this guy to, to market in, in 2025 plus. But once you get there, it's monstrous, right? The, the, like, oh, <laughs> that's just, 
But I was just telling you not to hit the parked car. That's that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Cheers, Luke. So yeah, and this this whole thing as well. I think you know what I'm showing it to you. We built all this as well from the ground up, right? Because when you build something, we call it 5D perception. When you build something that's never been, never existed. Uh, even to demonstrate it, you almost have to build the entire visualization engine. So this is all ba built on a gaming engine, a Unity gaming engine, um, and that that allows us to, you know, we built that entire, you know, th those scenes, and we can bring in maps, and we can do all that, and just just see the world in a in a completely different way. Okay. Well, what I'm going to do is we'll end the podcast here. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a camera, and we're going to do a short little video, which we will link and put up as well for people to actually see. Cool. But it's a fantastic story. So all the best. I hope the safety equipment does end up in cars by 2025 and beyond. So, Barry, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. And that was the latest episode of Magnified with Matt Cooper, which, of course, is a podcast series designed to have lengthier interviews with my subjects. It's sponsored by MG, the family car manufacturer that delivers more and wants to highlight the product quality and advanced technology the brand has on offer. More tech and features the standards not extra. And of course, there's a whole range of previous podcasts available to you. If you've liked this one, there's a lot of terrific other guests that you can hear. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, the Magnified with Matt Cooper series has lots more there for you to enjoy. Until the next time, thank you for joining us. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.